0: In 2023, we as a church are studying together Paul's letter to the Romans and our series is called The Gospel of God. And that is because Romans is the clearest and the most full explanation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ by which we as God's people are justified, are sanctified, and one day are going to be glorified. And last week, we looked together at what I told you was uh, the most important passage in Romans, maybe in the entire Bible, Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. And we saw that with uh, profound and beautiful theological language, Paul explained for us what one scholar calls uh, the innermost meaning of the cross. He, he just painted this uh, beautiful picture uh, of what happens in salvation, how we are saved from the wrath of God and given the righteousness of God and, you know, become part of his family. And I want you to notice, with this in mind, uh, what Paul says right after this, which is what we're going to study today. The first thing Paul talks about is no pride allowed. No pride allowed. We, we see it in our passage, verses 27. Through thirty-one, the last verses of chapter three, listen with that in mind to what Paul writes. He says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word, and all God's people together say, Amen. I want to remind you, as I've said already a couple of times, uh, we need to remember reading this passage that that Romans is not first and foremost this abstract theological exposition of the gospel. Paul was writing to a real church with real people facing real problems in the real world. And we we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Maybe you remember how Paul was writing Romans shortly after the Jewish people had returned to Rome. They, this was following Emperor Claudius's uh, banishment of them five years earlier in A.D. 49. He had expelled all the Jews that were in Rome, and this included the Jewish Christians there. Uh, you can read uh, something about this in Acts chapter 18, the first couple of verses. But then after he died in A.D. 54, this ban was lifted, and Jewish people, they started returning to Rome. But here's what happened. When the Jewish believers came back to Rome, they discovered that the Gentile believers, in their absence for five years in the church, they had been running things. And they were doing things differently than they had been doing them when they were kind of in charge. Just think about it. Before AD 49, it had been the Jewish believers who really had been in charge. They were the first to follow Christ. They were the ones who had God's Old Testament, what we call the Old Covenant today. And and now as they come back, the culture that had been in charge was not in charge anymore. And it's not really hard to imagine how a number of cultural and ethnic tensions began to surface, began to... Flare up, And I told you once or twice before that this tells us that one of the reasons that Paul wrote Romans was to help unify the believers who were in Rome. And it also tells us something very important for our lives today. And I want to make sure you don't miss this. We're going to be seeing this in a lot of detail further on in Romans. But I want you to see Paul's response to relationships and relational conflicts. It's the gospel, See, Paul writes the Bible's most lengthy and full explanation of the gospel to deal with relational problems. And this tells us something very, very important. Gospel truth is always the best way to deal with relational problems. In fact, gospel truth is the best way to deal with all of life's problems, all of life's challenges, Maybe, maybe you noticed the, the questions that, that Paul was asking here. There were a lot of them. There were actually six questions in these five verses. And I, I want to see these boil down to three important truths that Paul is teaching us. And these are truths about uh, relational conflict. They're also truths that just flow out of the gospel. Keep that in mind. So if you're taking notes, here's the first uh, truth. The gospel excludes all our pride and boasting. The gospel excludes all our pride and boasting. You need to recognize how radical this statement is for our culture. We live in an age where pride is encouraged and is celebrated in almost every way, right? We're supposed to be proud. We train our kids to be proud, right? There's something wrong with you if you're not proud. Isn't that kind of the general overall way that our culture thinks. Some of you are kind of going, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Well, listen to what Paul says. Hear the message. I'll give you a little story. Happened at Southwinds. True story. Uh, Not a preacher story. You know, there's a difference sometimes. Um, True story actually happened uh, across the way in our kids ministry one Sunday. Pastor Chris was talking to the kids and engaging them in dialogue as he taught them. And he asked them this question. He said, why does God love you? And a little eight-year-old girl shot her hand up and spoke out and said, because I'm amazing. (laughs) And Pastor Chris (laughs) kindly and correctly responded, actually, no, you're not amazing. (laughs) And there were some uncomfortable laughs and a few gasps in the room because you're not supposed to say that are you pastor Chris continued he said you're not amazing but you are loved you are loved he said God's amazing because he still loves you even though you're a sinner And he went on to explain to the kids why that's so important. And I'll just tell you, the thing is, if you don't think you're a sinner, if you think you're amazing, you're not going to think you need amazing grace. You're you're not going to think you need a savior. And our culture has this so backwards and some of us have bought into it so much. Some of you right now, you don't like what I just said because you think you're supposed to tell your kids all the time how amazing they actually are. And I wanna be really clear, the Bible doesn't tell that, us that we are to denigrate our children, that we are to diminish their value. They are of eternal value, like every person, why? Because God created them and Jesus died for them. That's where their worth is. But Jesus, never forget, did have to die for them. Their worth, and here's the problem, is not in self-worth. Their their worth is in God's love. And you can have true value and and a true sense of worth and acceptance that stays with you no matter what happens in this life, but it only happens when that is rooted in who God is and not in who I I am. Does that make sense? Are, Are you tracking with me here? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? You know? So the gospel excludes all pride. It excludes all boasting. Look again at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So Paul says, well, how is boasting excluded? Is it excluded by a law? Is there a law that commands you, thou shalt not boast? No. That's not what the gospel does. The gospel excludes boasting by undercutting the very basis of pride. You were not saved by anything you did, right? Good place for amen there, vigorously. (laughs) You could not keep the law. You fell short of the glory of God. You were a miserable failure. There is none not righteous, no, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. Go back a couple of weeks and listen to what Paul says back there in in the first part of chapter three. See, the gospel reminds us that we were so bad, Jesus had to die to save us. And see, that is what destroys the basis of pride. You know, Paul he, he actually talks about boasting over 15, or 50, 50 times in his letters. It's a, it's a big deal for him. And, and I, I could preach like a whole series, I think, on boasting. But the root idea in the Greek word translated boasting is to glory in something. It, it also has the idea that you're putting your trust in something, it has the idea that you speak words of praise, you know, the, the, the pride you have in something issues out in words that come out of your, your mouth. And it's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe you've noticed this. The Bible says some boasting is good. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Similar thing is said in Jeremiah 9. You can check that out too. And I think this This tells us something very significant that we were actually created to boast that God wired us to want to just instinctively, reflexively to honor and to marvel at and to be amazed by and to speak words of praise at an object that is worthy. But we were not created to be amazed at ourselves. God wired us to boast in him to glorify him. Galatians 6:14 Paul also says, "May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." I'm going to boast about the cross. Paul says what the cross has done in my life. Now, think about it. Why is boasting bad? I mean, what has Paul been telling us for most of the first three chapters in Romans, I mean, where we've been for weeks and weeks now, what what has he been telling us our greatest problem is? It's sin, right? What's the root of sin? Where does sin come from? You ever really thought of that? Now, if you stay in Romans, you go back to Romans chapter one, we see that Paul says that sin is exchanging the glory of God for something else. Pay attention to that. What do we put in God's place, more than anything else. Any of you people have a, a mirror like in your purse or something like that? If you want to, you can open it right now and see the answer to my question. <laughs> right? We, we put ourselves, right? We, we, we put ourselves in God's place more than anything else. And what that tells us is the root of all our sin is pride, and pride... Is a form of self-worship, which means pride is idolatry. Do you see that? That means that pride is at the root of all sin and evil, that pride is at the root of all pain and suffering and brokenness in this world. It's pride. That's the problem that leads to our sin. And actually, Think about it, we cannot be saved, right? We, we can't be saved unless we turn from our pride, unless we turn from our boasting. We cannot be saved unless we leave our glory and we start living for God's glory. See, boasting works right against that. It, it runs against that, doesn't it? There, there, there's no room in the Christian life for boasting, And see, that's the principle. That's what Paul is driving at. But I want you to think about the kind of things that were happening and caused him to write about that in real life there in Rome at this time. And we see the clues for it, evidently. One of the issues that was dividing the Jewish and the Gentile believers was the way some of the Jewish believers were still looking at the law. There there seems to still have been some of them who thought that, you know, along with the gospel, following Jesus, you know, meant you had to keep the law. There was still some of that religious mindset that we talked about a couple of weeks ago I obey, therefore I am accepted and see like all of us like all of us do until the gospel transforms our minds they were still measuring God's favor still trying to find their righteousness and keeping the law and see this is not a new thing this is a perennial problem in the church and this is what we were talking about a couple weeks ago this is where so many of us struggle in our lives and it was kind of interesting to me how many people went back to the lobby to get that sheet of paper to look at that because it resonated with you didn't you saw in those columns that contrasted gospel and religion you saw something that explained a lot of the ways that you look at life and how you react to life it is a perennial problem so it was happening back then it was happening even then and maybe you're kind of still wondering how that works well it works sort of like this. Whenever we base our righteousness on how well we do, we inevitably, invariably, always, always, always put ourselves in competition with other people. Because always how well you see yourself doing in life is determined by how you compare to others. In fact, you want to write a couple words down to ponder, talk about in your life, group. write down competition and write down comparison. And see, this always leads in our lives to pride and boasting because when you're doing well, you're doing better than somebody else, right? And when you're not doing well, it means you're doing worse than somebody else and it leads to despair, it leads to jealousy, sometimes hate. I mean, think about it. The essence of pride is competition and comparison in every area of life. Doesn't matter whether it's wealth or sports or academics or it's parenting or culture or ethnicity. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a great quote about this. He says, pride is essentially competitive. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Are you feeling this? We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. In other words, pride Runs on the fuel of competition and comparison. And so in religion, we're always asking this question. We're looking around, we're making comparisons. Some of you did it even today when you walked in. Am I doing better than that person? Am I more spiritual than they are? Have I achieved more than so and so? And if you think you're doing better, it will invariably turn into boasting. And boasting turns into judgmentalism. Do you realize every time you judge someone you're doing this, you thought I'd be a spiritual? No. You're being judgmental. You're being proud. Every time you feel disdain for someone spiritually because they're not doing something they ought to do, that's what this is right here. And then on the other hand, when you're not really walking with the Lord so well, you're not doing better, that, that makes you feel inferior. Sometimes you get jealous of other people. It eventually can turn into hate. I'm about to really get into um, meddling right now, okay? So just kind of buckle your seatbelt, pull up your big boy pants, whatever you got to do. I want to ask you a question, serious question, And I'm just gonna give you permission ahead of time just because I'm trying to cause trouble right now. I really am. You can elbow the person next to you if they really need to hear this, okay? But then that means they get to elbow you back. Do you struggle with hearing any kind of criticism? And all God's people said, ouch, See, if you're a person who, I mean, nobody likes it, that's fine, but if you struggle with it and you know this and you always move into self-defense or on the other side, you, you move into self-pity, it's a pride deal. It's, it's because your identity is based on you being seen a certain way, and so if anybody challenges that, that your sense of your own goodness, they are challenging your identity, who you are, and so criticism either devastates you or you get real defensive and you start compiling a list of all the other things that that is, person is doing, what's wrong with that person is criticizing you. Anybody good at that one? See, your righteousness. This is, this is your righteousness. Your righteousness has been attacked and so you have to defend yourself. Some of you don't maybe do it like this. You just move into silence and you silently resent who, whoever you think is making you look bad. And so it's that guy at work, you know, he gets the promotion instead of you and you go, yeah, but I'm a better dad. He is. Or maybe for some of you moms, it's that mom, you know, her always posting or perfect little pictures on Instagram of her perfect little kids all in their perfect matching outfits you know with her perfect cookies baked fresh every day in her perfect stupid kitchen <laughs> right don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about and you find yourself thinking I just hate her and, and you kind of secretly hope she has marriage problems you know Do you understand that stuff like this, don't look at me weird, you guys do this, right? I know you do this, whether you say you do or not, you do this. Because we all do this. See, this comes from having an identity built on our goodness. In fact, when our righteousness that we establish, our pride, our boasting, comes from our law-keeping, we usually live in denial about our flaws. We, we can't admit our flaws, even to ourselves, because that would undermine our sense of goodness. And so when Paul asks this question, by what kind of law, part of what he's saying is that everybody lives either one or two ways, uh, by the principle of law, this law of works, or we live by the law of faith. And it's kind of an ironic way of putting it, it's a little twist of irony here to call the law of faith. He's really more talking about principle And and I think that almost everyone here, we know the doctrine, we believe the doctrine. We would say, if you've been around here very long, you know this and you believe it. You know, we would say, I am saved by grace through faith, not by works. You you believe that? You really do. And Paul's question would then be: Then why are you boasting? Why are you comparing yourself to other people? Pride, he says, is excluded. Paul says the law of faith is what the gospel requires. It's what the gospel actually commands. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith, please be clear on this. Faith is not a work. Faith is just resting in what God has done. Faith is just receiving the gift that God gives. We, we receive Jesus' atoning work as a payment for our sins. We're not doing anything. And, and Paul says in verse 28... We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So our righteousness comes by faith. It's not by anything we, we, we do. He's saying since we didn't do anything to save ourselves, then how can we boast? What do we have to brag about? What do we have to feel proud of? And the answer is nothing. We're no better than everyone else. Have you already forgotten what it said in verse 23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified, Paul says now, by grace, Through faith, alone, in Christ, alone. Here's what I want you to understand, and it'll change your life if you get it. The gospel destroys pride. And to the extent that we have pride in our lives, to that extent, the gospel has not yet penetrated and permeated some parts of who we are. It's a lifelong project, See, the gospel destroys pride. The gospel should produce humility in every Christ follower because it it destroys that pride that makes us think, I'm better than that other person. And a lot of us, we, we will think that and we'll go on to say, yeah, I know we're all sinners. I know we all fall short of the glory of God, but I believe, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that my sin is forgiven and I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm better. The gospel destroys that kind of pride let me flesh this out relationally the gospel destroys the pride that prevents us from confessing our sins to one another anybody here like you're congenitally incapable of saying you're sorry don't look if you are a person who almost never says it or if you do no one really gets that you're saying you're sorry this is a pride issue well, why won't you admit that? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same place. Why, why won't you admit that? You know, is it because you're afraid of what others will think of you? Is it afraid of what you have to grapple with yourself if you admit your weaknesses, admit your fault, like admit your sin? I mean, just ask this question. Write this down, talk about it, you know, in your life group. Go around the circle and ask everybody, when was the last time you admitted you were wrong? Ask the spouses in your group to tell on the other person when that was. That'll make for a really interesting life group. And just think about your marriage while we're talking about spouses. Have you done something, said something to your spouse that was sin, and yet you have refused, you are refusing to confess that sin to your spouse and ask for their forgiveness? You're too proud to admit your sin. See, the gospel, when you get it, destroys that kind of pride. The gospel should produce humility, the humility that allows us to admit our our faults and our sins to one another. Here's another thing. The gospel that destroys pride also produces the kind of humility that allows us to receive correction from our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we, we like to say around here, No perfect people allowed. How many of you believe there are no perfect people in this room right now? Would you raise your hand? Then why do you not like it when someone tells you you aren't perfect? Right? Why do we struggle with this? It's a gospel problem. When we get the gospel, we start telling people, I am struggling, I need help. Would you help me? Would you walk with me through this season of my life? Here's something else. The gospel produces the humility that builds unity among believers because it always reminds us we're all in this together. We are all, like we talked about last couple of weeks, the Latin term, simo justus at peccator. We are all there. We're all sinners while simultaneously people who God has justified through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We're all in this together. No one's above anyone else. No one's below anyone else. We're all sinners. We all far short of the glory of God. Amen? Amen? See, God, in His goodness to us, has done this for us. And therefore, there is no room for pride. Let's move to the second thing that we see. Paul tells us the gospel creates, and notice this phrase, an exclusive. Inclusivity. And I didn't create this phrase. I got it from someone else, but it's so good I want to use it. I think it really helps us to see something. And here's where this starts. Let me explain it. In other words, the gospel that destroys pride is for everyone, no exceptions. The gospel is inclusive, but it is a unique kind of inclusivity. Look again at verses 29 and 30. Paul says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, Paul is saying God is one, therefore he's the God of everyone. There is only one God, that means he's everyone's God. And when you pull this down to the personal level, if this is true, Paul is asking, why do we see ourselves in these different categories? Again, we, we saw this last week. There's only one kind of person that's a sinner. Romans three twenty-three. which by the way, if you haven't remembered, is our chapter three memory verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is just saying again here, doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, black or brown or white, old or young. He says all have sinned and we saw last week Again, there's only one way to be saved. Verse 22 says, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believes, for there is no distinction. Now come back to verse 29. With that in mind, since God is one, Paul says here, this one, this only God, he is the one who justifies both the circumcised, that's religious people, spiritual people, and the uncircumcised, that's the irreligious people, And he does it the same way, he does it through faith. See, Paul is telling us that the gospel creates this new humanity that overcomes all of the divisions that are created by human boasting, human pride, human comparison and competition. It is this new and inclusive humanity that overcomes any divisions that come from our pride. Now, if you're listening to this, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, only one God Are you saying only one way of salvation doesn't sound real inclusive to me? That sounds like the definition of exclusive. And and I get that response at the service, but I want you to listen to this. We need to understand, because this is how our culture thinks, we need to understand this next thing. Write it down. All religious claims are exclusive. All of them without exception. For example, if you take the classic, typical, uh, inclusive statement, which says something like, all good people of every religion go to heaven, right? How many of you know somebody who believes that? All good people every religion go to heaven. Raise your hands if you know somebody that believes that, right? That's like hashtag coexist. There it is, right there. That sounds super inclusive, doesn't it? But think about it in that statement. In that statement, who have you excluded? The bad people, Right? The bad people, here's another question. Who gets to define what's bad? You realize that different people, different cultures, different ideologies, different religions are gonna have different lists for who's good and who's bad, who's in, who's out. There's no one list anywhere. Now, maybe all of us would be agreed, you know, we'll all put rapists and child abusers and murderers on that list. But wouldn't you agree just in our country, that the people in blue states and the people in red states are gonna have a little bit different lists? Wouldn't you agree that people in Sweden or France are gonna have a different looking list than the people in Saudi Arabia or Nigeria or Indonesia? See, the point is, we all have a list. Say we all have a list. And some people are on your list and some people aren't. Even if you say, they all are, Maybe you hear this, you say, well, I'm not really religious. I don't exclude anyone for any reason. But you still have a standard for what's a good person, and you need to get honest with yourself about it. All religions, all moral viewpoints end up eventually being exclusive. Everyone has a line for who is in and who is out. Does this make sense? But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a different kind of exclusivity, because the gospel teaches that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. We are not accepted because of our moral record, because of our education, because of our marital status or our race or our political viewpoints. God gives salvation solely by grace as a gift to all who will repent and receive it in faith. You could say all religions are exclusive. But Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. And it's a fascinating thing to go back to the New Testament when you understand some things and you see that what made the gospel in the first century scandalous was that not who it excluded, but who it included See, back in the first century, you've heard me talk about this a couple of different times. Um, A Jewish man would pray like every morning, uh, a prayer like this. Thank God I am not a woman or a slave or a Gentile. That, That was a prayer. People actually, they actually prayed and they felt really, really good about it Maybe you remember, it wasn't too long ago, I was telling you the story that comes from the book of Acts, where, where Paul, this Jewish rabbi, travels to the city of Philippi, and he begins to share the gospel there, and the first three converts that he reaches, you can look it up, Acts 16, where Lydia, a woman, and then a slave girl, and then the prison guard, a, Jew, a Gentile man. You see, the gospel overturns all basis for the boasting, the pride that leads to division. Paul says it's excluded. By what kind of law? By what of works? No, on the contrary, he says by a law of faith. It's not, it's not through a law, as I said earlier, that tells you not to boast. It is through undermining the very things that cause division in the first place. And by the way, in case it hasn't been clear, don't just think of seeking righteousness, justification or keeping the law in strictly religious terms because all people, religious or secular, seek justification and righteousness. I'll give you a couple of examples. Maybe you remember the movie, *Chariots of Fire, it's been out a long time, but famous, famous scene. Harold Abrahams, the Olympic sprinter, competes in the 100-yard dash. Someone asks him why he's always training so hard, and he actually says this, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And here's what he's saying. I want my life to count. I want to know I have worth and value And the way I'm convincing myself and other people that my existence is justified is that I'm really fast. And in the movie, he runs and he wins the gold medal, but it's not just a gold medal. It's his righteousness. It's his justification. It validates him. Sometimes that success comes through a job. And many of you are in this place. There was a True story a few years ago. If you're into movies, you may know the name uh, Sidney Pollock. He was an actor, a famous producer. He actually died. Uh, 2008, but just before he died because he was sick with, um, I believe it was cancer, uh, there was an article about him that explained that even though he was sick and he was dying, he wouldn't stop working. He couldn't stop working. And even his family started begging him to stop because they could see his working was causing him to get worse, shortening his life, and he refused. And the article said, movie mogul Sidney Pollack says that although the grueling filmmaking process is wearing him down, he can't justify his existence. If he stops, he said, every time I finish another picture, I feel I have earned my stay for another year or so. See, we all in some way end up saying, here's how I earn my stay. This is a secular form of righteousness. Some people, many of us, I'm sure maybe, we try to find it in our parenting Tim Keller writes about um, an author who wrote this article and it was about how his career had stalled out, (laughs) what he wanted to read, what he was writing. And he started questioning his purpose in life. But this guy wrote this, he said, but then I look at my two little girls and I know that my existence is justified. In other words, being a good dad, that justifies his existence. And you know, I think a lot of us parents find ourselves there. Our our existence is justified by raising our kids and enabling them to be successful. But I wanna tell you something, if you've never thought about this before, if your children are your righteousness, if your children are your justification, you will crush them eventually. You will put too much pressure on them Because you need for them to succeed for you to be validated. And if they don't succeed, if they fail at school or they get into trouble, you know, in some way, maybe they don't really get a good career. You will take it as a deep personal blow to your identity. Some of you have even said to them, if you don't do this, then I'm failing as a parent. And what some of us don't understand is when we think like that and talk like that, our desire for their success is not about them, it's about us. It's selfish. We need them to succeed for our righteousness. This is what the Bible teaches us about us. If we don't find our righteousness in Christ we will try to find it somewhere else. It, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, this soul condition we see there. This is one of the most revealing pictures of the human race. Uh, uh, St. Augustine points this out. He talks about how our sin has caused us to have this sense of, of nakedness. We feel naked, we feel exposed, and and so we look for something to be our clothing. We look for some kind of righteousness, some kind of justification. And and by the way, if you don't know this, the word uh, righteousness and justification are the same word in Greek, they're parallel. We're always looking for something to clothe us, to make us feel whole. Charles Spurgeon, the uh, 19th century British uh, Baptist pastor in London once uh, gave this famous quote. And he, he was talking about how he saw several places in 19th century London society where, where, where pride caused division. It's, it's amazing how true this still is today. Here's his quote. He said, be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. I mean, think about it. We have the pride of race still with us. Still with us. For many people, their ethnic identity becomes a way of distinguishing themselves above others. Jews in that day, pride in their Jewishness. The Romans, pride in their Romanness. This led to racism, what we would call it today. It led to superiority, sometimes to xenophobia. Today, people you know, can take pride in their nationality, pride in their ethnicity, pride in their cultural identity. And that's not all wrong. Because all cultures contain something of of God's creative power, can reflect his glory. It's okay to delight in the things that are good in our culture. But when we start thinking that our culture is superior to others and we stop seeing the brokenness that is in every culture, when our culture becomes our righteousness, when we find our primary identity in it, then Paul would say, Do you not understand the gospel? Because the gospel tells us there is only one race of people, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we only have one core problem, and that is sin. All have sinned, Paul says, there is no distinction, and we only have one hope, and that is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. And it doesn't matter who we are, whatever our ethnicity or race, there is no distinction. Boasting is excluded and any kind of ethnic superiority that any one of us has is antithetical to the gospel. Paul talks about the pride of face and place. These kind of go together. This is when we look at some Excuse me, Spurgeon does. We look at some attribute or accomplishment that we have or we think we have earned, and we, we look at other people. You, you ever walk into a room, you start categorizing people, right? I think all of us do this in some way. You know, we always are categorizing people. There's the successful and the unsuccessful. There's the smart and the stupid. There's the rich and the poor. There's the good looking and the Ugly. There's the fit and the fat. You know, it just goes on and on. We have our categories and we look down on the people we think are less than we are. If we are below somebody, we feel intimidated by those we think that are more. And whenever we do that, we are showing we do not understand the gospel, right? If you wrestle with this, two questions for you. Do you realize how little of your talents you can actually take credit for? I mean, your parents gave you your genes. God gave you your health, and by the way, he can take it away anytime he wants. God gave you the strength to pursue the opportunity you have. I mean, do you really think if you had been born as an orphan in a village in Somalia that you would be as successful as you are today? All you have is a gift. And then second, do you realize how worthless our talents are when it comes to the things that really, really matter for eternity? Our talents cannot justify us before God. Again, before God, there's only one kind of person, and that is a sinner who is hopeless and dead without Christ. They're not like high-capacity successful sinners and low-capacity loser slacker sinners. We're just all dead sinners. I heard somebody say recently, heaven's not a scholarship program where God rewards the best. See, and think about this even if you have some things in your life that maybe set you above certain other people, think about those things in the light of eternity. I mean, who cares if I'm not that intelligent now because one day I will inherit the mind of Christ, right? And it doesn't matter really if I'm not beautiful now because one day Jesus will make my outside match the beauty of the righteousness of Christ that is inside me already. That's good news, friends. I can be ugly for 70 or 80 years because I'm gonna be beautiful for eternity. Amen? I was gonna say all the ugly people said amen, but I thought that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a good idea. It doesn't matter you know, if I'm successful now because the weakest saint here has been appointed by Jesus to reign with him as kings and queens forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. See, it doesn't matter uh, right now if someone appreciates me or, or it criticizes me because in Christ I have a father who rejoices over me with love, who dances over me with singing? That's one of my uh, my own personal memory verses, Zephaniah three seventeen. You should check it out. It's a good one. So the pride of race makes no sense. The pride of face or place makes no sense. Maybe worst of all, Spurgeon says the pride of grace. This pride that comes from having lived like a moral life and then thinking somehow you're better than people haven't done done that. And Paul would say, Do you understand the gospel? Because in Christ there are no good people or bad people. There are no people have together and the dysfunctional people, there's only bad, dead, sin-sick rebels without God, without hope in this world. Only people that God saves freely by the gift of his grace. And just because God in his grace has kept you from some of the worst expressions of your sin and your flesh doesn't mean you're better than the people who committed some of those sins. Now, the Puritans used to say the seed of every sin is in every heart. In Romans 3.10, as we studied, there is none righteous, no, not one, none who seeks after God. So where do you get off thinking you're superior because of your race or your face or your place or even your experience of grace? You did nothing to be where you are. It is all of God, and it is all for God's glory, and that's all we should be concerned about. Amen? See, Christianity is exclusive. It teaches the only way we can be justified in God's sight is by having Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But that is the most inclusive exclusivity that has ever been because it says, whosoever will may come, anyone can come. No one is excluded. Everyone's welcome. You read Romans three again and just notice all the all, the nuns and the all statements. There is no distinction. All have sinned. All are justified freely. And you come back to verse 30, and Paul says, since God is one, he justifies everyone the same way, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's kind of interesting right there. Did you notice it says by faith in one case and through faith in another? They don't really mean anything different. Scholars think maybe Paul was kind of winking and saying, okay, you want to be different? Okay, Jews, you're justified by faith. Gentiles, you're justified through faith. There you go. You can be different. And again, what was scandalous about Christianity in the first century was not who was excluded, but who was included. And when we get this, it just changes us. We don't boast anymore. We're humble. We're comfortable in who we are and how God has made us, even in our imperfections and our failings, because that's not what it's about. We're not building our own righteousness. We're trusting in Christ's righteousness. Listen to this. I love this quote. Paul David Tripp says this, nothing can ever be uncovered about me that God has not already seen and covered by the death of Jesus. Some of y'all need to take a picture of that and take it home and put it on your mirror and look at it every day. And be reminded of God's grace. See, where is my boast? Is it in my race or my face or my place or even in God's grace? See, anytime we boast, we are forgetting the gospel and it will lead to problems. But when we, go, when we boast in the gospel, then we become the most inclusive community the world's ever seen. Really quickly, number three, the gospel calls us to obedience to God's law. The last verse, Romans three thirty one. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And Paul ends this chapter by dealing with one more objection that he anticipates would come from his Jewish listeners, people who might be saying, Paul, you're so hard on the law. You're like saying the law is worthless. Paul says, no, 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 not at all. He says, I'm the one who's upholding the law. And what? we talked about recently was the law reveals God's character to us. It, I said last week, it functions like a mirror that shows us how far short we fall of God's glory. It drives us to God's grace. And Paul is saying once we've been driven to God's grace, then out of gratitude and love, we develop the desire to become more like the God who has shown us grace. And so we go to God's law to learn how we can be like him. Here's one more quote. Jen Wilkin, Bible teacher, says it this way, the law drives us to grace, but grace drives us back to the law. The law drives us in desperation to grace, but when we experience grace, it drives us in devotion back to the law so that we can become more and like the God that the law reveals, the God who has shown us grace, the God who has saved us and made us his own. See, one of the ways that you truly know you've experienced God's grace is that you deeply desire to obey God's law. Grace and law are not pitted against each other. You won't be asking, how little of God's law do I have to obey and God will be okay with it. You will want to know how you can obey God more and more. You will not want to boast in yourself, but only in God, only for God's glory. You won't want to boast about your righteousness, your justification, but about Jesus' cross. That's where we find true righteousness. That's where we find real, lasting justification. And that is why the cross, that is why God's grace, God's gift of righteousness that has been given freely to us, his people, that's why it all together means There is no pride allowed in God's kingdom. And So Paul's word to us today, Southwinds, is this. Repent of your pride and in humility, turn to Jesus. Boast in God and in God's glory, in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the work of God's kingdom. Boast in your Savior. This is where peace, this is where joy This is where hope, this is where purpose and meaning are found. Not in ourselves, but in the God who loved us and saved us from our sin. This is God's word for us today and all God's people together say amen. Amen, Amen. would you bow your heads? Father God, we give you thanks today. That you loved us so much that even when we were rebels, sinners who deserve your judgment, you in your love and your grace and your mercy and your patience, you reached down to us, you sent your son, and Jesus gave his life, paying the penalty we deserve so that we could live the life that only he has earned. We're not orphans anymore, Father. We are we are sons and daughters because of your love and your grace. Help us to live, God, in humility, no pride, because we know we have nothing on our own, but we have everything in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people say, amen.